Amen. Thank you, Tyler. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to that psalm, Psalm 46, we're going to spend our time there uh, really thinking about this. As you know, over the last month, we've been looking at the five solas. Um, and in, just so you guys know, a little inside baseball kind of stuff, I, I, I tend to plan out the whole year. So I've got most of the sermons mapped out and lined out for all the year. And one of the things I intentionally did was left a gap on this date, not knowing what I would do here. Next week, Morgan Proudfoot, the guy that Carl prayed for, is going to come and share about the work that, that uh, God is doing through them up in New England and then uh, after that, we're going to start looking at the book of Micah. And so I had this opening. And I've been praying off and on, just, Lord, what would you have us do? What would you have us study? And I didn't quite know what we were going to get to. And so a few weeks ago, Ermal and I were working through, uh, we're talking about a book that we are working through over the course of the year. It's called The Practical Pastor. And one of the things that was there was just this challenge to be silent and to be alone with God and to be still. And so this verse came to my mind and, and I thought, oh, that would be a great thing because, you know, it's the new year. We're all trying to get active. We're all trying to do all these resolutions and we're trying to, we, it's just so easy for life to get busy. So let's talk about being still. So I put that on the calendar on, in my little spreadsheet and we began planning the service around this theme. And then as I started studying it, I realized I was all wrong. Because that verse, the verse that you see on the, be still and know that I am God, in most of our translations, it reads that way. And, and we think, oh, it's just such a nice devotional thought. Be still and know that I am God. And yet I had it wrong. Because if you think about it, every verse of Scripture is within a context in this case, in fact, if you have your Bibles open, I do want to encourage you to have your, we're not going to have any slides. This is the only slide you get today, and it's going to go away in a little bit. So have your Bibles open. I want to encourage you to see what is there in the Word of God. And if you're looking in the Red Pew Bible, it's on uh, somewhere around page 403. Um, you, can, you can look there. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one. Or there's a couple Bibles out in the book nook. That would be our gift to you. You're welcome to grab that for free. But as I was studying this, I began to look at some different translations of this verse. One of them said, cease striving and know that I am God. Another one said, stop striving and know that I am God. Being still and ceasing striving, they certainly have big overlaps, but there are some distinct differences between being still and to stop doing something that is against God. So let's, let's think about this, you know, what, let's think about what uh, Tyler read for us. And, and as you look at this passage, as you look at this psalm, you'll notice that it's probably in my Bible, and probably in yours as well, it's divided into three sections. You kind of see that by this little word, Selah. Nobody really knows what Selah means, except that it's probably some sort of a musical note, musical pause, just saying, okay, you're going to sing this part, you're going to pause, have a little instrumental, electric guitar is going to wail and do their thing, and then they're going to come back in, and you have another little pause and do that. And so what you notice is that in this psalm, there are three stanzas, just like we have sung multiple songs with a couple different verses, a couple different stanzas. 
But as you look at it more closely, you can also look, look at verse, um, so we see verses one to three create one stanza, and then there's that musical pause, Selah. Verses four through seven create another stanza, and then there's that musical pause, Selah. And then the last section, verses eight through 11, again, create a musical pause. And they all kind of, they all flow together, but they all say something a little bit different. But notice, I want you to see something else. This song has a chorus or a refrain. If you look in verses 7 and 11, notice that those verses are the same verse. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And it's almost as though the psalmist wants us to walk away from this song with that refrain in our mind. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is our assurance. And so what I want us to do just briefly, we're going to look at each, each of these three stanzas, and then we're going to really try to spend a good bit of time pondering what this last stanza means. Because being still and knowing that He is God is one thing, but when you look at it in the context, it says so much more than what we might just reflect on devotionally. So if you want to take notes, I've got, I do, like every good preacher, have three Notes, and that is this. The first, the first one is this. Stanza one really talks about God being our refuge amidst earthly calamities. God is our refuge in the midst of earthly calamities. You know, when we, we think about the earth and this big ball of dirt that we're floating around the universe in, and we think about it as being something pretty stable. Did you know that Armageddon almost came two weeks ago? There was apparently a... a, a an asteroid that, was, that just barely missed us. And they didn't know about it until about three days before. It was small enough, it, you know, had it hit us, it would have been like all the movies, and we would have been... But we, we look at things and we think, wow. We think the earth is big and strong and we can... But there's instability potentially there. We can generally predict weather patterns here in the mid-Atlantic Earthquakes are rare. Weather, weather patterns are generally moderate. Even huge hurricanes, though they can be devastating, by the time they get to us, we're so far inland, we don't, we don't feel them quite as much as other parts of the nation do. But what happens when that which is stable becomes unstable? When that which is that thing on which we live becomes shaky ground? So the psalmist begins in verses 1 to 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. One of the commentators I looked at said this week, said that in these, in these verses, verses 2 and 3 are as close as the psalmist can come to a literal description of, the, description of the world falling apart. In the face of this worst case, the psalmist affirms God as refuge, strength, and help when the very structures of the universe as we know it cannot be dependent on. When our world is falling apart, God can still be dependent upon. You see, in, in the um, ancient Middle Eastern thought, mountains began, became symbolic of what makes us stable. They, they keep the water at bay. They keep the sky up. It's just, but if the mountains are turned over and thrown into the sea, you can imagine what the psalmist is really getting at here. This is the end of the world as we know it. And yet in the midst of that, God is still 
sovereign. See, we can look back on creation in wonder and amazement and think all that we see, God created with the word of his mouth. We can look and study the seasons and the patterns and the weather cycles in order to plant and harvest. We know what to expect. God has created predictability there. And yet, in calamities, Scripture tells us of times when God brought floods. He brought droughts. He had seasons when He would feed the earth and seasons when He would withhold His hand. And then even Jesus Christ demonstrated control over the wind and the waves. We see that in Mark 4, 41. So the psalmist, first of all, wants us to know that God is our refuge even when earth, even when this planet on which we live seems to be falling apart. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like it is. But in the second stanza, the psalmist takes us from thinking about the earth, the world, to thinking about interpersonal conflicts. I think he's essentially saying God is our fortress amidst interpersonal conflicts. Look at what it says in verses 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You see, he begins by reflecting on this river that flows from the throne of God, this river that flows through the city of God. Really, the city of God, I think, represents all of God's people. It represents all of us who are his, who've been bought by his blood. Back then, they were, they were probably thinking just about the people of Israel. And yet there's blessing that comes from that. There's provision. And yet... When challenges come, God is the one who will be the strong tower or a fortress of protection for his people. And these conflicts, they might be national conflicts. And he talks about a couple there. You see, the Psalms were written in a historical context. In fact, there are times, if you notice at the very top, if you're looking in uh, in your Bible, in this translation, it says, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a psalm. But sometimes that little header gives us, gives us historical context in which to understand what's happening around this psalm. This psalm, we don't get any of that. All we get is a song. It's a song. It's supposed to be sung to this tune. And we have no idea what that tune is. And yet there's been several commentators who have looked at this and said, well, what are the things that happened in history that might have prompted the psalmist to write this? And there were two main references that came up. And if you want to jot these down and and go back and read them later, some of the commentators suggested that maybe Isaiah 37 is the context in which this was written. You see, in that that chapter in Isaiah 36 and 37, um, Hezekiah and the people of Israel are being threatened by um, Sennacherib, by a, a foreign invading army. And he's being very boastful, he's being very proud, and he's, he's really blaspheming God. And he's, he's, he's telling all these people, do you really trust God? Are you really going to trust in this God? And so he wrote letters telling everybody, don't believe your king, I'm, I will destroy you. And so Hezekiah 
went to Isaiah and, and asked, well, what should we do? I have these letters, and these are very threatening letters, and we are weak. So I, Hezekiah, at Isaiah's prompting, took those letters, and he brought them into the altar at the, in the temple and spread them out before God and said, God, this is what this attacking army is threatening to do. Will you help us? And God acted and moved. He was their fortress, their rock. But there's another context that I found very interesting. Similarly, the king Jehoshaphat, and we see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat was again being threatened, not by one army, but by two, as they're coming against the, the people of Israel. And he, he was they were afraid. In fact, let me just read a little bit of what Jehoshaphat, what happened here in, in uh, 2 Chronicles 20, verses 5 to 12. It says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, And I want you to hear his prayer. Hear what he says. O oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and, built, and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Amnon, I'm sorry, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let in Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a prayer. As he pleads before God, there's these armies. And I was wrong before. It wasn't two, it was three. These armies begin to come in and threaten. And eventually, you know, you know it's so fascinating. The, the text says that the Lord um, essentially routed them. He created an ambush against these armies. And what happened was the, two of the armies began attacking the third army, and they all killed each other and went away. God worked a miracle in the midst of these people. Israel didn't even have to raise a sword. But I think, you know, when you look in their context, they were a theocratic monarchy. They're a, 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 theo, they're, they're a theocratic, meaning they're worshiping, they're studying, they're taking all their laws from God, and yet they have a monarchy kind of leading them. And yet, you know, time and time again, Israel rebelled and God would punish. And, and yet, in this case, God stepped in. But I think in addition to God's presence being big in national conflicts, he is also present in personal conflicts, in those things that happen between us 
among us. He is present and he knows what needs to be accomplished if we will let him. But we come to the final stanza, verses 8 to 11. And essentially, this is our call to respond to God. Our call to respond to God. And, and I, I think in this, there are basically three commands. And, and let me read this for us, verses 8 through 11. And then hear what the commands of the Lord are. How we should respond knowing that one, God is sovereign over earthly calamities. Two, God is sovereign. He is our fortress amidst interpersonal conflicts. So here's how we should respond, starting in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the first command that we see, the first um, instruction that we have is to observe. Come, behold, look and see what God has done. And he tells us how he brought desolations on the earth, how he caused wars to stop. We can go back and we can look in Scripture and we can see all the ways that God was faithful to the people of Israel. We can look back and think, man, there were some big conflicts and God worked miraculously in his people's lives. He is our fortress. But I think we can also look throughout history and we can see different times when God worked in wonderful and mysterious ways and we can trust him. But I bet if you and I were to sit still for a bit and look back, we would see God's faithfulness in our own lives. We would see those times when we would notice that Yeah, God worked this out in a wonderful way. So not only does he tell us to observe, to come behold the works of the Lord. Secondly, he tells us then to stop striving in our own strength. As I said before, many translations say be still, but it seems like the Hebrew is communicating so much more than just if you got an Apple Watch, do you get the daily mindful moment? If you don't have this, you know. But every day my watch says, be mindful, be quiet, sit still. For, and, 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 and I think the psalmist is saying it's more than a mindful moment. It's not just, it's, it's, a, it's an active stopping. It's a quitting doing something else. The NET translation says, stop You're striving. James Montgomery Boyce applied it this way. He said, lay down your arms, surrender, and acknowledge that I am the only one and only victorious God. You see, ultimately for the people of Israel, there were times when they truly did have to put down their arms and let God fight for them. As we saw with Jehoshaphat, God fought on their behalf and they didn't even have to leave the city. But think about a few areas in our lives where this might be applied. In in life and in the conflicts we we encounter, we tend to want to fight battles in our own way. We want to stand up and defend our own rights. We want to make sure that justice happens and and, and I'm going to make it. We want vindication. We want to defend our rights and our dignity. 
And we can sometimes assume that our way is the right or only way. And yet we fail to see God working. We fail to work the way that God works. I think I've shared with you before about my father-in-law. He, he was in a, a really nice position and, and he was overlooked for a promotion. And he found out later on, found out amidst that process, those of you guys who have worked in the federal government, you know there's certain things that have to happen. Well, in his, in his life and what have you, he did what was right. I mean, he, he, he said, here's my resume. But then he found out that someone was handpicked outside of the process to put in that role, which shouldn't happen in that context. And so he confronted his boss and he said, you know what I can do. It's within my rights to bring a lawsuit, to call a spade a spade and to do this. He said, I'm not going to do that. Mainly, he said, because I don't think God wants me to do that. And so his boss, knowing, or his future supervisor, potential supervisor, knowing what had been done, knowing that he did wrong, made something right by my father-in-law, put him in a position that he got to enjoy for five years. And it was a wonderful thing. There was peace amidst all of that. And the other guy knew that he was in the wrong and that Fletcher could have had his job. But I think it's important that we realize with Isaiah 55, when God tells us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So in those conflicts, we need to adjust our thinking from our way to God's way. But secondly, I think that in our worries, in those anxieties, in those things that bottle us up, we need to allow God to take hold of them. I don't know if you guys are ever like me. I'll, I'll pray and say, God, I'm concerned about this. God, will you please take this? And then I tend to take it back, right? 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And then he says this, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I don't think that word casting is like fly fishing, where you're going to take it out, and bring it back. You're going to get it out and you're going to bring it. It's more like throwing a baseball or throwing a stone across water. You're casting it out there so that it never comes back. And I hope that we can get to that place where we can truly cast our anxieties before the Lord. It doesn't always change the situation, but it gives us an opportunity to trust that he is working something far beyond what we're seeing. Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what you will wear about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive 
which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these, all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things. Sometimes we get so bottled up in worrying about minute things, and we just need to let it out before the Lord. And trust that he will accomplish and instruct us in what we need to do. I think there's another way. Sometimes we resist. Not only you know, do we find God's ways different in interpersonal conflicts, not only do we find that we need to just release our anxieties to him, but I think also we resist his way. We resist his way. When, when the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 8, we get to see this beautiful picture of him on his way to destroy Christians. He, this is before he was the Apostle Paul. He was Saul. And God knocks him off his, his horse and confronts him. And when Paul recounts this story in Acts chapter 26, he says, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Sometimes I think we just push back on God so much, we're running away from what he's wanting us to do. We're trying to do it in our own understanding. We're trying to do it in our way. We're trying to, God, I can't trust you in this because it doesn't make sense. And yet we need to step back and see. I think that's why the psalmist here said, stop striving. Stop striving. And maybe in one other area is our prayerlessness. How often do we pray, God, would you help us in this situation? And then I go over here and I scheme and work and plan and try to do all these things, not waiting for God to act. I'm going to take it into my hands. God, let me help you with this. I can assure you he doesn't need my help. There was a situation last year when, our, when Melody, our daughter, was um, getting, she had been applying for internships in order to graduate from college. She needed an internship, and so she was applying all these different places, and there was one that she was really, really interested in. She knew, she just, she had this sense of peace that this is what God wanted her to be at. She wasn't hearing back from them. She wasn't hearing back, and there were all these others, and she finally got an offer from someone else. And she looked at it, it's like, you know that old adage, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush? I didn't know how to advise her. Thankfully, she's got a grandfather who is way smarter than me. Because she wanted to keep both options open. And he basically said, Melody, if you feel like this other one is the one that God has for you, you may need to close this door first. So she, she prayed about it. She felt peace about it. She wrote an email to that other company and said, thank you, but I'm going to pass. And it wasn't long after that that God answered her faithfulness and responded to her prayer by saying, you have this other role. God worked beautifully in that situation. 
But I think there's one other way that God wants us to stop striving. And that's in salvation. You see, for a lot of us, being Americans, we look at life and we think, well, we're only going to get, or be, at least being people who live in America, we, we, we think we're only going to get what we've got if we work hard for it. It's that old bootstrap mentality. Let me make it on my own. And it works in so many areas, but when it comes to salvation, it doesn't work that way. We've talked about that a lot last month. Salvation is a gift of grace of God that we receive by faith alone, through Christ alone, based on the word of God alone, because God gets the glory alone. I was having lunch with a guy a while ago, and he was in a spot where he he believed in God, but he couldn't just get to all the Jesus stuff. He couldn't believe in Jesus. It was too easy. Yet he didn't realize, as it says in Acts, there is Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So even in salvation, we have to stop our own bootstrap mentality, stop our own working our salvation out, working, going to church enough, giving enough, serving enough, doing all these good things, stopping all these bad things. It's not about that. It's about admitting that we are powerless on our own, just like the people of Israel with Jehoshaphat. And we have to come to God and say, God, I've got nothing to give you. It's only by Jesus Christ can I come. So the psalmist tells us to observe, come, behold, and then he says, stop striving, be still. And then he finally says one last thing. He says, know that he is God Almighty. Know that I am God. The NET translation again says, stop your striving and recognize that I am God. I will be exalted over the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We have to recognize that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the big things in life. He's sovereign over the little things. And I think it's important that The psalm is trying to get us to calm down and to trust and rest in God's sovereignty that we might walk in faithfulness before him. Because ultimately, as they said twice, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There will be storms of life. There will be challenges. There will be trials. There will be job loss. There will be death. There will be sickness. There will be financial turmoil. There will be all this stuff. There will be storms of life, and yet God is still sovereign. James Montgomery Boyce, again, talks about that. He says, the storms of life will come, and the greatest storm of all will be the final judgment. Make Christ your refuge now while there is still time. Know that he is God. Let me just close with something, um, and then we're going to go ahead and look at the Lord's Supper. As you know, Zoe works with Glenn and Lisa Norris with their goats. We've got like, I don't know, seven goats that we drag around their yard and take to the fair and things like that, and we feed them stuff. And it's interesting. So the, the idea is when fair comes around, Zoe is supposed to be able to take a goat and walk out to an arena and set it up and point out different things. And 
But in order for all that to happen, the goat has to know her. Well, when you've got baby goats, they don't always know what's going on, so they're a little resistant. So they know her better than they know me. So yesterday we were out there trying to help, trying to walk some goats, and one of the goats, Zoe was dragging the goat, pulling the goat along, and everything was fine. I got out there and was, the goat should know me. They see, us, see me regularly, but it didn't know me. And I pulled her by the collar and started walking with her, and she reared her head back, and then she went down, and I'm like, come on, we're going. We're going to go for a walk. Let's go. And I tried to talk nice to her. I tried to be gentle. Let's go. She didn't know me. She, the other one knew Zoe a little bit better, but you know who they know really well? Lisa. Lisa has that voice, and she just, come on, guys. And they'll walk with her. They're not resisting. They've observed that she's been the one to feed them the most. And so they're like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. Oh, she wants me to go for a little stroll. Yay, I get to get out of the pen. Let me go. You see, ultimately, the goats got to a place with her where they knew that, that she had their best interest at heart. They stopped resisting. Some of those goats are big. I mean, they're almost 100 pounds. And so the big ones, you're, you can't drag them if they're not going to go. Ultimately, I think we're a bit like goats. We have to build up that, get to that place where we trust that God has been faithful in the past. And that God is, he may be doing things differently than we want him to do it. So we have to stop doing it our way. And let him lead us. Let him guide us. The first place that is, is in salvation. And so I want to just encourage you, if you've not yet followed Christ, if you've not yet repented of your sin, get to that place. Know that God is for you. He is your refuge and strength. Stop trying it your way. Know that he is God. Let me pray for us. God, we do.